Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of Our Athletes. My name is Michael Rosil, your host for the show with the most incredible people on planet Earth, Olympic athletes. I'm loving it. Today on the show, we have Kim Conley. She is a multi-time Olympian with USA Track and Field. She has done some incredible things. Her story is crazy. She's done like just the way she got to the games the first time. I mean, there is a picture that went viral back. I think it was... Um, you, you, you can find it on the internet. I promise you that. I searched Kim Conley and uh, Olympic trials and you will find that picture. It's incredible. So guys, I hope you really enjoy this. Kim's done some amazing things. Um, this is super inspirational because, you know, when you listen to what she went through and how she got to where she is, um, you can definitely tell that a lot of things can be achieved if you just put enough heart and energy into it. So Kim was incredible. I hope you guys really enjoy it. And other than that, have a wonderful episode. All right, and our very, very special guest today is two-time Olympian Kim Conley. She's a part of the USA Track and Field. She's a middle-slash-long-distance runner, born in 1986 in the United Kingdom, but she does race for the United States, so we sincerely appreciate that, Kim. Uh, she used to run track at UC Davis, and as I said, she ran the 5,000 at the London and Rio Games, and she has a husband and coach with the same name. Turns out they're the same person. His name's Drew. I'm sure he's a great guy. He's helping us out a little bit today, so I really appreciate that right off the bat. So, Kim, thank you so much for joining us today we appreciate it yeah i'm happy to be here thank you love it love it love it awesome so i gave a very short very quick synopsis um but if you wouldn't mind actually telling us a little bit about yourself uh yeah so like you said i was born in the united kingdom my mom is english my dad um passed away a couple years ago but he was american and but i moved here when i was seven months old um you know ra raised in the u.s and was never a doubt that i was going to represent the u.s um if I ever got to a level where I was good enough to even be representing the country. <laughs> love it. That is too funny. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. We sincerely appreciate it. We love all our athletes, um, all shapes, sizes, or where they're born. Heck, if you want to help us out, we are all for it, right? <laughs> I'm sure you've heard that a couple of times. So very cool. And then um, you ran track at UC Davis. As we already said, you did the, um, you got to the London and Rio games. You and I obviously spoke a little bit before this. Tell me about what it was like making the Rio games for the first time. You said you had a pretty unique, um, I guess, pretty unique story on how you got here. Yeah. Uh, the London games was. Oh, the... I'm sorry. Yes. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. 2012. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so in, in 2012, um, well, so I graduated from UC Davis in 2009, three years before the Olympic trials. Um, my PR in the 5,000 was 1617. And for perspective, the Olympic standard was 1520. So um, a good 57 seconds slower than, than what it would take to be an Olympian. Um, but, you know, that wasn't really the goal when I graduated college. I just knew that I had faster 5,000 than me and, and wanted to find out that the 16 minute barrier was out there. And, and I just knew that I could, you know, I wasn't tapped out and I just really wanted to see how fast I could be. So, um, I kept working hard over those three years and just like chipping away and, and, you know, taking chunks of time off my PR. Um, and then in April of 2012, I had one more breakthrough that's, I'd kind of like whittled my PR all the way down to 1524. And so suddenly I was two months away from the Olympic trials and only five seconds away from that Olympic standard. So that was really the first time I started thinking like, wow, this might actually be possible. Um, and then I went into the Olympic trials without the Olympic standard. I, I didn't have the opportunity to run another 5,000 before the Olympic trials. So um, so in order to make the Olympic team, I had to run under 1520 in that race at the Olympic trials and finish in the top three at the Olympic trials. Um, 
And so it, it made for a little bit of a weird tactical setting at the Olympic trials because um, there were a few athletes in the field that already had that Olympic standard. So they had no desire to push the pace and, and help somebody like me get the Olympic standard. So, so they were kind of hanging back and I took it upon myself to, to try to push the pace and, and keep it within range of, um, get, of getting the Olympic standard. Um, and then, but I didn't do a great job. And so then, um, about 3000 meters into the race, I realized that we were going too slow. I, I had a mentally weak moment. I, I'd been up in the lead. I fell back to eighth place. Um, and then, uh, with about a lap to go, I kind of like, I heard Drew yelling for me and I suddenly like jolted back in and realized that I'd worked way too hard. We'd worked really, way too hard. My family had supported me. And like, I was just kind of like coasting and I was like, no, like I, I have to leave my heart out on this track. Um, so I moved back up into fifth place cause I was sitting on a pack of women that I was like, no, no, like you're just sitting here, like get past them. So I moved into fifth place. Um, and then I realized that the woman that was in third, she'd made a really hard move earlier in the race and she was starting to die. And suddenly I was like, okay, I'm not going to get the Olympic standard, but I could still be on the podium and that would be a great accomplishment. So I just like dived down, was just like absolutely running as hard as I could. Just had this huge second wind to catch her. Um, it came down to the final straightaway. I could hear the like crowd at Hayward Field and Eugene, like just like roaring, seeing this drama unfold. And I leaned at the line and I ended up taking third place by 0.04 seconds and then getting under the Olympic standard by 0.21 seconds. And so suddenly with like that lean and in that fraction of a second, I'd actually made the Olympic team. That is wicked. I mean, that is literal chills like that. Like what are the, I mean, what are the chances legitimately? Obviously you put, as you called it, an unbelievable amount of work to get to this point. So you absolutely deserve it. Um, and that is just, that is just too, too cool. 21 one hundredths of a second point what was it point four for the the podium 21.21 uh, for the um the olympic standard so that is just yeah i mean like that's i i can't even snap i feel like i can't even snap my fingers that fast so it's just it's it's incredible and you know c congratulations that's a ridiculous accomplishment and you deserve you know everything you get and and um i mean that's that's just so cool what was that what was that feeling like i mean when did you finally find out did you just look up and you're like oh my god and then did you just have a rush of emotion? Were you just completely drained and you didn't even care at that point? I mean, I'm sure you cared, but couldn't even show it. Yeah. So, I mean, after I crossed the finish line, I, I felt like I had probably taken third. Um, but I wasn't sure that I would have gotten the standard because I'd completely stopped watching the, the clock at that point in the race. Um, and so it was taking a while for the results to come up because the finish was so close. The officials really had to like read the finish photo to see, um, whose chest crossed the line first, how they met. It's not like whose foot crossed the line push it, it first. It's actually the chest. Um, and so I had leaned at the line and, um, and so I was just like waiting there, waiting to see what the time would be, um, fearing that it was going to be like 1521, um, and then finally our names came up and I was in third and the Olympic rings were next to my name and it said 1519. Um, and I was 0.21 seconds under the standard and I was just so shocked. Um, I, I threw my arms up in the air and, um, and there was this picture that went viral afterwards where the photographer had been able to, to capture 
that that moment where it looked like my eyes were popping out of my face because um, I just I couldn't believe that it all come together in that moment. That is that is just so cool. I love it. I love it. I've heard it now a couple times and I just think it is it is such a cool, cool story. And like, yeah, I guess, you know, photographers, it's right place, right time most of the time with those guys and luckily guys and girls. So luckily, um, they were able to capture that. I, I can't think of the picture, but I wrote down in my notes, find the picture and I wrote it under the section that I think I'm going to remember what I'm looking for. So hopefully I, I do find that. And uh, I'm sure it won't be too difficult at this point. I'm sure if I just Google search your name and click images, you'll pop up. So that is super cool. That is super cool. So with, you know, so you essentially kind of just, I don't want to say shut your eyes to the whole prospect of, I guess, making the games. Cause you even said you just didn't even pay attention. You just ran. How, in the moment, what was that like? You were just like, okay, get a podium. Cause that, as you said before, get a podium, you'll still feel extremely accomplished by, about that. But what, you know, how do you almost shut your mind off to something like that? Like, I, I've never obviously been anywhere near a stage, something like that. So what is that in the moment, I guess, what exactly is that like before you found out um, you were going to the Olympics? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, you know, in the moment in the race, um, you're, I was just trying to focus on what I could control. And, and I felt like at that stage of the race, I, I felt like the time was pretty much out of my control. Um, and, but I felt like I could get up to the top three position. So that's all I was focused on. Um, but then, yeah, I mean, after, after, after I saw the time, then, um, yeah, I mean, it was just like, it was so thrilling and, um, and exciting. And, and I basically just couldn't, couldn't wait to, to find my family to celebrate with them. Yeah, absolutely. That is, that is super cool. Um, so just, uh, you kind of explained it, but I just want to make sure and, and worst comes to worst, we'll figure out another way to do this. But what, um, how exactly does qualifying for the Olympics works? Cause you said you, in this last race, you had to get a podium and a specific time. Is it, is there so many races that you have to do so well in do you have to hit that time at some point throughout the season just so our audience has a good understanding of kind of how um that exactly works yeah so the the way it works is um you you have to have run the olympic standard within a certain amount of time um before the olympic trials um usually like nine months um they said it like okay. for some november but basically with the way the track season unfolds it's like in the spring leading up to the olympic trials if you've run under the olympic standard then you have to finish in the top three. So basically at the trials, it's the top three finishers that have already run the Olympic standard. Okay, cool, so, cool, cool. Yeah. So uh, both of those can just happen in separate occasions. It was just thrilling enough for you that they happened on the last possible exactly. literal half a second. So that is, that is very cool. I love it. So then you get to the games, you know, what, it, what is your first games like? You're, you know, I'm not going to, you're not, old for the world don't worry but like you're a little bit older you're three years older than I'm sure you know out of college at this point um you know you're probably racing against a bunch of young 20 somethings which you were what was that like getting there kind of without the expectation of getting there how did you let that entire you know experience wash over you yeah I mean I think in the weeks leading up to it I was almost just still in shock um it didn't even really sink in until I got there and was walking in the opening ceremonies. And that's when it first really hit me that, wow, I'm, I'm really at the Olympics. And um, it was so meaningful for my family because uh, like I said in the beginning, I was born in England, my mom is English. And, and so for her, it was like, you know, we, we were going home and, um, and I had a lot of family there. Um, and so that's when, you know, it really first hit me. That's like, wow, I'm, I'm at the Olympics and I'm in London and, and this is really happening. And then, 
the rest of the experience was just, um, I was soaking it all in and really enjoying it. Um, I remember there was a day in the Olympic village where I, I got in the elevator in my building and there was a diver who walked in and he had his gold medal around his neck. And I just couldn't believe I was seeing a real gold medal in real life. <laughs> so it was just a, a lot of little moments like that, that just, um, just kind of like made it sink in, but also at the same time was just like, I, I kept kind of wanting to pinch myself that, um, I was really living it. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was just such a thrilling experience. That is, that is so amazing. I mean, you're literally one of the best athletes in the world or something. So that is so just unbelievable. Did you, did you walk up to the diver and ask him like, Hey, can I just like touch that by any chance? Like, is that okay? <laughs> no, no, I was, I was definitely, um, too shy and in awe. <laughs> yes. A little taboo too. You know, you don't want to touch the trophy before you win one. So, you know, hopefully yeah, yeah, that, there's enough. always that side of it as well. And that's actually a really, a really great point was brought up um, by another athlete that I've, I've spoken with. How much, I guess, cross-pollination and co-mingling was there between other runners just that you've never met before from around the country, as well as just other athletes from other sports that you obviously have no connection with. Um, what was that like in getting to, you know, have that, you know, connection of pride, but also just being able to just pick their brain and see what kind of things they're doing as well. Yeah. So the, the way the um, Olympic village is like set up, I guess, is you have like kind of all the U S athletes in, in a building or a couple of buildings. Um, but then like within the buildings, they, in the suites, they would house like all track athletes together. Um, so like, and then, you know, the village has every country and every sport all together. So when you go to the dining hall, you would, you would kind of get to see and, and interact with, um, any athlete from anywhere, which was, which was really cool. Um, but for the most part, like I was living with track athletes and, um, and so then kind of like inevitably going to the dining hall and, and spending most of my time with track athletes. That is pretty cool. And what what was, what was that experience like? Like just being able to meet people that are doing these sprints, people that are doing the crazy long distances, you know, did you, did you try and just pick their brain, see what they're doing on a daily basis kind of thing? Or was it more of just, Hey, we're here. Look at what we did. How amazing is this? Um, yeah, I mean, we, we definitely spent a lot of time together and it was fun getting to know people and yeah, exactly. Like seeing just like little differences, um, like, pretty amused you know because as a like as a high level athlete and someone that's like had to work hard to to make it um i was i was really dialed in with with all the details like like nutrition um and then you know to see like a marathoner that's like oh, i'm like i'm going to mcdonald's because <laughs> mcdonald's is a huge olympic sponsor so they have that in the cafeteria which i never would have gone to but um it's pretty amusing to like you know just see like some athletes that are like way more relaxed than you would expect. That is actually really funny. Yeah. I, I know McDonald's is a sponsor, but I just assumed it was like a sponsor for us as the viewers, not actually for the athletes. Like maybe after a huge race, you can go and indulge a little bit, but you know, it's just one of those things that, you know, high, extremely high level elite athletes, McDonald's doesn't seem like the number one thing that's going to be on their uh, list, but oh, Hey, I was so surprised every day. It had a huge line. <laughs> that is, that is too funny. Well, I mean, Hey, they know their body relatively well. If they think they can do it more power to them and Hey, hopefully yep. they won. That's all we're looking for. <laughs> that is super cool. So Kim explain to us just so, you know, we get a good understanding. Your first one, you were very in awe. You went, you raced, you did your thing. Congratulations. You rock and roll. Compare that to the second time around. And, and 
some of the, I guess, was there extra added pressure? Because now it's like, okay, I've been here, I've done this, I'm the veteran, because I mean, what maximum most people go to three Olympics. I know we have some huge outliers, but, you know, two to three Olympics, and that's pretty much it for most athletes. So now you're kind of the, you know, hot shot on campus, you know what you're doing, people are following you around. What was that like, uh, you know, for yourself, and then also for seeing other athletes actually look up to you to see kind of what the deal is, or what ways to kind of go about things? Yeah, it was um, it was a very very different experience um, starting with the Olympic trials. So um, you know when I left the Olympic trials in 2012, like I remember just feeling I was so like excited and inspired by you know the fact that I'd made the Olympic team that I you know I was already thinking like four years down the road I'm I'm gonna be back here I'm gonna win the Olympic trials in the 10,000 like that was my my big goal and um, and after the Olympics were over. I kind of made a four year plan that was going to point me in that direction. And, um, and it went really well. I, in 2014, I, I won my first national title and it was in the 10,000 and, and I was building really good momentum. Um, I was clapping for you. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> I was just clapping. I don't want to clap too loud cause it gets on the microphone. Sorry about that. Um, and so then, so I went, um, in 2016, I went and my goal was to, well, my goal basically was to win the 10,000. Um, and luckily along the way, I had run the Olympic standard in both the 10,000 and the 5,000. And I just had the 5,000 in my back pocket. But, you know, I was like 100% all in for the 10,000. Um, and then at the Olympic trials, three miles into the race, I got stepped on from behind and my shoe came off and I had to stop and put it back on. Um, and I, I made an effort to, to try to catch back up to the, to the leaders. Um, but by five miles realized like they were long gone and it wasn't going to happen. And um, it was a really hard decision, but I, I stepped off the track and decided to shift my focus to the 5,000, um, which luckily there was a lot of time between the 10,000 and the 5,000. I think it was, there's two rounds of the 5,000, but I think it was five days in between the 10,000 and the first round. So I had time to recover and, and regroup, um, but it was really stressful. You know, I, I fully expected to make the team in the 10,000 and then all of a sudden like the worst case scenario had happened. And so you start having lots of doubts. Um, and, and so luckily, like, you know, I surrounded myself with, with all my people and, and was able to regroup, um, and, and come back and take third in the 5,000. And so, so I made the team, but, um, man, the, the emotions were so different, you know, instead of just being like shocked and excited and, you know, and ready to just like really celebrate, like all I really felt was relief, um, by the end of the 5,000. That's crazy. Like what such a such a small thing. Like I get my shoes stepped on occasionally when I'm just like walking around like and then you know you, that happens to you. I mean, obviously, stakes are a little bit higher there. And unfortunately, you just you aren't able to make the team. So you said you had about four or five days between the 10,000 and the 5000. It seems like the 10,000 was your race. So it's extremely unfortunate. How much of how much of those five days were lamenting? I know you said it was relief after but like what how were you just able to put your head down and say, Okay, this is done. I'm out let's just only focus on the 5,000 or was there still a little bit of, Oh my gosh, I can't believe that just happened. Yeah. I think I, I definitely remember waking up um, the morning after the 10,000 and feeling like, Oh my gosh, that whole nightmare really just happened yesterday. Um, and, and I'm not going to Rio in the 10,000 and, you know, and so I definitely had a moment of, of disappointment that day. And then, um, and then I just told me like, I didn't have any other option um, but to regroup. And then what really helped was in between, I had a training partner who was running the 800 and she won the 800 and made her first Olympic team. And so then that was like really thrilling and reminded me a lot of my 2012 experience. 
Um, and, and so it was like after that race that I, I felt more like resolve, like, okay, like I am going to Rio, I'm going to find a way in the 5,000. I'm not going to worry about winning anymore. Like first place is the same as third place. As long as I make the team and I'm making this trip to, to Rio with her. That is so cool. Well, congratulations again. That is unbelievable. Um, man, you got some crazy stories. I love this. This is super interesting. I love it. I love it. This is why I love doing this. Cause I get to hear about all these, um, just out of the box things that happen. I mean, you would have never guessed, right. And you know, it's unfortunate, but Hey, at least you made it two times. It's unbelievable. So I guess now back to my original question without, you know, realizing that you had another unbelievable story to tell. Um, what was it like the second time around with kind of being the veteran at that point, you know, you kind of, I know obviously it's a new place, but you knew what was going on. You've done it before less deer in the headlights, less in all. I'm sure it was still amazing, but what was that like the second time around? Was there any extra pressure that you put on yourself knowing like, okay, I'm here now. Last time I did this, this time I want to do that. Yeah. Um, so in, in 2012, I PR'd in the 5,000 in the first round of the 5,000, but I didn't make the final. So, um, one of the, like, I don't know if you call it like consolation prizes or what, you know, whatever the like silver linings of, of not going in the 10,000 in 2016 was I told myself like, okay, now I'm going to go in the 5,000 and I'm going to make the final. And that's going to be this measurable improvement I can make, um, from 2012. Um, and, and I think maybe one of the biggest mistakes I made in 2016 is I, is I went to Rio with a set of expectations that were based on my experience in London. Um, and, and then it, it wasn't the same experience at all. Um, and I, I found it to be, yeah, more stressful and, and I was putting more pressure on myself. Um, and, and I ended up finishing in the exact same place that I finished in 2012, which was 23rd overall. Um, so no improvement whatsoever, even though over the four years I had made lots of improvements along the way and, and felt like I was a better athlete. And so I ended up, leaving Rio, you know, it's funny, like in 2012 and 2016 at the trials, I was third place both times. And then at the Olympics, I was 23rd both times. And in 2012, it was just so exciting. And, you know, the whole experience was thrilling. And, and I left Rio feeling really disappointed with my performance. Um, and, and so I think, you know, it's, it's a good lesson. Like, you know, when I look ahead to 2020 now, it's, it's to be a little more open-minded um, just about, you know, it's London versus Rio versus Tokyo, like, different cultures it's just going to be like different experiences heck yeah i love it yeah it, it's super it, it makes sense that even though you did the exact same you are going to be a little disappointed only because you you had expectations you know i mean there's right. one of those things you know low expectations you'll never be unhappy i don't truly believe in that um but you know it's just one of those things you know the higher expectations if you if you miss them um you know it's obviously you're going to be disappointed so that that does um stink but i mean at the same time you're 23rd best athlete in the world or something i would personally think that that is uh pretty darn good um at least that's the way i like to think about it. i don't think i'm ever gonna be 23rd at anything in the world if i am i'll be extremely happy if i could do it twice i think i'll be even happier so there's always that side of it as well so so i guess we're looking ahead to 2020 well what else, anything else about 2016 that you'd love to share with us maybe you know just one of the experiences or anything that else um in in comparison to 2012 by any chance um no, I don't know. I mean, I think, yeah, I think, I think that probably sums it up. Um, 
yeah, I mean, I, I treated it differently. I think because I had higher expectations for, for my performance, um, I didn't do things like go to the opening ceremonies. You know, I, I made it less about the experience of being at the Olympics and more about the performance. So I think that's where the disappointment really came from is that at the end of the day, I still got the same result. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That makes sense. At least you got to enjoy it once and hopefully you'll be able to enjoy it again this, yes. this time coming up. So tell us a little bit more. So 2020 is right around the corner. I mean, it's less than two years away, if I'm not mistaken, um, depending on the time someone's listening to this. By the time of recording, it's just under two years away. Um, so what, um, what, does, what does training look like now compared to when you first started having the opportunity um, to potentially make it to the Olympics, you know, we're talking 2010, 2011, compared to 2018, 2019, how much of a difference is there? I mean, I'm assuming there has to be a little bit either through recovery, the amount of, of miles or time you're running. And how does, how do they compare? And how are you kind of setting your body up for as much success as possible? So that way you can be at a minimum 22nd in the world or something. <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a good question. I would say that overall training is is elevated and has continued to elevate over the years in terms of, um, you know, how far I run, how, like the, the quantity, the mileage, um, but also the paces I'm able to run. And, but that is actually due to the enhancement of recovery along the way. Um, and, and just kind of like the, the lifestyle and, um, that I live so that, you know, ev- every, my entire lifestyle revolves around, um, trying to get the best and most out of myself every day. Um, and, and so that's been kind of like a, a process that's evolved for me over the years. And then I think, um, over, over all these years, I'm also kind of like accumulating the benefits of that. And what's, uh, so, so I already have bad knees. I'm 26. I barely, I run like two miles a day tops and like, I'm already going to need knee surgery in the future. Uh, <laughs> what, what is it like kind of the wear and tear in your body? You've been doing this for almost 20 years now, give or take. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, so, so what's the wear and tear like on your body? How does that feel? And how do you make sure you're getting in the most or, or at least the, I guess, minimum amount of recovery that you need to perform at your highest? Yeah. Um, so I'm 32 now and, um, yeah, I mean, I have, I have had a a few more problems with injury over the last couple of years. Um, and, but, it's the, the, the attention, um, to the body and kind of learning to listen to my body a little bit differently. Um, and, and maybe not be so rigid with, with a training plan and being a little bit more like adaptable and flexible, um, to, to really get after it when, when I, my body's telling me it's a good time to, but then being able to scale things back, um, you know, if I'm feeling something and then having a really good support team around me of, um, chiropractors and, and massage therapists, and, um, you know, so in, in 2010 and 2011, um, I would see them maybe like every other week. And now, now I'm getting body work like twice a week. Um, so it's, you know, it's definitely a lot more attention to that and, and just having, you know, more, more care overall. That is phenomenal. I try and go to my chiropractor at a minimum once a month. He is a wizard. I don't know how he does it, but I just let him do whatever he needs to do. And I, I walk out so much happier. So, that, so that, that's actually super cool. So how, um, how have you learned, I guess, to listen to your body? Because it, like, it sounds like an easy thing and you hear athletes talk about it all the time, but like, how do you know, like, oh, shoot, tomorrow's going to be bad or, oh, no, I think tomorrow's going to be good or you wake up, you feel all right, and then you get into it, you're not feeling that great. How have you learned, I guess, to start listening to your body more or at least hear what your body's telling you because you know at 24 you're probably just like nah it's fine I'll go and now at 32 you're probably like okay wait a second let's kind of let's feel out what's going on here 
Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it really just like you, you have to develop that trust, um, just through experience. And, and, and that was really hard for me to do, but it's, it's taking me being able to like warm up for a workout and say, Hey, like my calf, for example, really doesn't feel right. And, you know, whereas a few years ago, I would have probably not said anything to anybody and just pushed through the workout. Um, now being, being open to, you know, like sharing with Drew, my, my coach and husband that, you know, like, Hey, this doesn't feel right. And, and jointly being able to make the decision, like, well, we're not going to do this workout then. And then in the, the days and weeks that follow, like to recover from the calf thing, and then also see like, Hey, I'm still really fit and, and have nail great workouts, you know, later that week or, or the next week or whatever. Um, so the, you know, it's just, you have to kind of go through that to, to realize that it's going to be okay. I'm sure. And I'm sure the dynamic of him being your husband and your coach is pretty interesting. The coach side of him is probably very worried. And the husband side of him is probably like, she's fine. She can keep going. Right. She's fine. So <laughs> that is uh, that is probably a lot of fun for you guys. And I'm, I mean, clearly you're killing it. So that's, that's all that matters. So what, um, what does it look like for 2020? What, uh, I know you said it's about nine months out when we start having to start, um, you know, measuring the, to the podiums and all that. What are you feeling? How, how are you feeling? Um, and you know, what, um, what are your expectations, I guess? Yeah, I, I am feeling good and, um, and I'm, I'm getting excited looking ahead next year in 2019 is a world championship year. Um, it's also a world cross country championship in the winter. Um, and then it's the summer cross country or sorry, track and field championships, um, in Doha in September. So, um, my goal is to make both of those teams, um, and, but, you know, kind of, like I said, the, my big learning experience coming off Rio was just to be more open-minded and adaptable. And so, um, you know, whereas leading up to 2016, I was all about the 10,000. Um, now I would say I, you know, we will see what emerges between the 5,000 and the 10,000 and I'll keep my options open. Um, but you know, I'm excited to, to race both and, and just be competitive. Heck yeah, well, we're crossing our fingers for both of them for you. So don't you worry. We got you. We're we're behind you hundred percent. I'm sure there's a couple more people out there too. Um, very cool. Awesome. So uh a couple more questions for me. One, I actually I want to help the, the whole reason I want to do this is I want people to understand who you are. I don't want them just to root for you because you're in the red, white, and blue. Obviously, that's a prerequisite. You already meet that. But I want them to root for you because you're Kim. You know, I want them to root for you because you're you. So what are some of the things? I mean, I know I've seen your your Instagram, you run a lot. Um <laughs> I, I've never run that much in my life as you have in a week. So kudos to that. But what else do you do? You know, what are your, some of your other hobbies? What are the things that you like to do when you're not running? Yeah, um, man. Well, so, you know, like I said, like my lifestyle is pretty dedicated to the training. So outside of running, you know, the vast majority of the year, I'm very low key. I love to read. Um, I enjoy cooking. I have, um, a, a little pit bull that we rescued in 2012, um, that I love playing with and, and hanging out with. And he's, he's actually pretty lazy. So we just do a lot of snuggling on the couch. He's my recovery partner. Um, and then, you know, when it is like a, a time of the year or a downswing in the season where, um, you know, I'm not so focused on training. Um, I still love to be outdoors. Um, so it's like, if I'm not running, then I want to go hiking, um, and, and be, you know, out and about in nature. Cause that's, that's where I'm happy. I was going to say you're there so often. I'm sure just like a nice leisurely two mile stroll is probably like, it's a vacation to you at that point. So that's probably phenomenal. And what, I'm sorry, if I missed it, what's your pit bull's name? Smokey. Smokey. Oh man. They get such a bad rap. My uncle had a pit bull. It was the cutest dog. It was so <laughs> 
I don't want to say dumb, but it was pretty dumb, but it was so awesome. <laughs> we would just hang out with it. It wouldn't, they, were, they get such a bad rap. It's so disappointing because they're such awesome dogs. I love them. Yeah, they are. Uh, they're very loving. Oh, absolutely. And I'm sure they, as you said, makes a really nice recovery partner. What, um, <laughs> yeah. what kind of books do you read? If you don't mind us asking? Um, man, I'll, I will read all kinds of books, but, um, my favorite is historical fiction. Um, I just, you know, when, when an author can, can take you back in time, but really make it come alive and and feel real, like it's happening right now. I I love that. That is pretty cool. Very cool. Very cool. I I listen to a lot of books on tape. I try and do my best at reading as well, but I'm a lot better at listening, I guess. And maybe that's why I'm, I'm in front of a microphone right now. So do you actually, that's, I guess, another question about training. Do you like, is there a certain playlist you listen to to get you, you, you hopped up? Or do you listen to podcasts? You listen to books? How do you, you know, you're on these runs for a pretty long time. I'm, isn't, it's not just you and your breath, right? Like that would get kind of boring. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I actually rarely run alone. Um, and so I, I don't listen to anything um, because I guess that would be pretty antisocial. Um, but yeah. And, um, and I don't listen to music before races just because I, I learned, um, early on that that actually could get me a little overhyped. Um, and, and, and in the longer distance races, um, I already have a little bit too much eagerness to make it hurt and you have to pace yourself. So, um, so I found that not listening to, to music, um, helped me stay a little more patient. Okay, cool. That makes sense. Yeah, see, that's that. That was my thing. I mean, I never ran, so it didn't matter. But I was always trying to get some some pump up music to get the adrenaline run a little bit. But in your case, because you're running those longer distances, that completely makes sense. Um, so Kim, just a couple more questions for us, and I'll let you get back to uh, dinner or whatever you got going on out there on the West Coast. So one thing that I want people to be aware of and really understand is that not all Olympic athletes live this glamorous lifestyle. You know, we we see the couple that are portrayed. And believe me, they completely deserve it. They did all the work. They got all the gold medals. Good for them. What I want to do is I just want people to understand what it's really like. Now, we're not going to ask you specific dollar amounts, but, you know, what is it like trying to get sponsors? What is it like, you know, trying to train and in the beginning, maybe having to have a full-time job so that you could continue to train, pay for your travel, get all the equipment, the nutrition, chiropractors, you know, you got to pay for that stuff. What is it like and how have you gone about making sure over the now what almost 10 years of doing this, like making sure that you're at the peak physical condition and also in a, a stress-free uh, mindset, I guess, when it comes to money. Yeah. Um, no, it's a, it's a good question. And, and that's also evolved for me over my career kind of as I've, as I've become more successful. So in those first three years out of college, um, before the 2012 Olympic trials, I didn't have a sponsor. Um, I was an assistant coach at, at UC Davis um, and so I, I had a coaching stipend for that. And then, um, you know, Drew was the head coach. And so that I was just really lucky. I think it's, it's harder for athletes, for most athletes in that situation to, to crack through and, and make it. But, um, he was willing to make my training, the, the priority. Um, and then we were kind of balancing that with coaching. Um, and then I just, I got creative in other ways. Um, I worked with a massage therapist in town who, was an ultra runner that wanted to work on her speed. So I started writing her training. And so we traded training for massage. Um, and then I, I was really fortunate and got a grant from a local organization, the Sacramento running association that, that really helped me. That was like the big thing before 2012 and actually allowed me to step back from the paid coaching position so that, um, I could, you know, that was six months leading up to the Olympic trials. And so that's when I was like, all right, like for six months, 
I'm going to be all in and live and train like a true professional athlete that has a sponsor. Um, and then, you know, if it doesn't work out, then I'm just going to be like fully committed to coaching and, and give up on this running dream. Um, and it paid off obviously. And so after making the team in 2012, I signed with new balance. Um, and so that, you know, that's been my sponsor and, and my source of income since then, um, or primary source of income, I should say. Um, and then, so for, for runners, um, the way it works is you, if you're at a certain level, then you do an endorsement deal with, um, a shoe company. It's basically all shoe companies in our sport. Um, and then you also earn prize money for your performances. And then, um, some races will also do appearance fees to have you come. So like, I had an appearance fee for making my debut marathon at the New York marathon, for example. Um, so that's kind of how we cobbled together all our income. Very cool. And that's good to know. Again, I just want, I want people to understand what it's like, um, you know, in those, those couple years leading up to the 2012 trials, as you, as you put it, I mean, working full time, coaching, having a side job coaching to trade for <laughs> massages which actually sounds pretty great i mean very smart very resourceful on your part so i love that but kind of, you know like that is you have two and a half full-time jobs at that point it almost sounds like let's call it two full-time and a part-time job that's extremely difficult and that's something you know personally i think is ridiculous and and people that are trying to represent our country and do everything they can for their country you know obviously it's not a perfect world but at the same time you know it would be nice to see just a little bit more help for you guys, especially in that situation. Now, thankfully you're doing relatively well, hopefully for yourself, I'm crossing my fingers. Obviously, hopefully you make these games and you win one of those medals, which makes it a little bit easier for you. And hopefully a couple extra endorsement deals come your way. Um, but it's just something that I want to make sure people are very aware of and really, you know, hopefully start to change the narrative a little bit around it. Because as I said, the general public thinks Michael Phelps is the norm or, or at least close to that is the norm. And, and as I found out, and as you're aware, that's not quite the norm and, and he did everything he deserves. So good for him. And I'm not yeah. picking on him. I wouldn't take anything away, but I just want people to, to have a pretty good understanding of that. Um, so Kim, the last thing uh, that I want to ask you really is just what is one thing that maybe the general public doesn't know about being an Olympian or going to the Olympics? What is something that you could tell us that you really haven't already uh, divulged to us already? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I haven't said it explicitly, although when I say it now, I feel like it's, it's kind of been coming out through the, the course of this interview. Um, but it's kind of one of the, one of the slogans the Olympic committee likes to use, which is it's not every four years, it's every day. Um, and, and I think that's, um, that's just so true. You know, the Olympics are something that come around every four years. Um, and, and that's when we're in the public eye again. Um, but in the interim, uh, we are, we're training every day and, and we have competitions that are, that are really, I would say should be equally important to the Olympics, such as the world championships. Um, but then because of the, the media exposure with the Olympics, the Olympics end up becoming the, mo the most important competition every four years. Um, but you know, the, the world track and field championships, the world cross country championships, you look at like New York marathon, Chicago marathon, Boston marathon. I mean, there are so many competitions that um american distance runners are competing in um throughout the olympic cycle that um are certainly like worthy of of attention and, and can be really exciting that is super cool and that's so true i mean the world championships you're, you're still facing the top competition in the world right it's not like you know that's an every single year thing you know so it is disappointing yeah. obviously but as you said the media coverage around the olympics 
it is the Olympics. It's the only way I've ever known it. You know, that's just, that's just kind of the way it is. We'll roll with the punches. And, you know, as I said, we'll be crossing our fingers for you in a couple events, hopefully this year. So uh, again, ladies and gentlemen, Kim Conley, um, USA track and field, uh, hopefully this year or in 2020, we're assuming, let's assume she'll be in the 10,000 and the 5,000 and uh, we'll be doing <laughs> somewhere above 20th place. I, I am very sure of it. So Kim, thank you very much again. We sincerely appreciate it. Congratulations and good luck moving forward. Thank you so much. Thank you guys so much for listening today. I really appreciate it. Our Athletes Podcast is just a fun project of mine to do. I truly believe that these athletes, Olympic athletes, even the hopefuls, nobody really knows what goes into it, and that's why I try and do this. I want to I help people understand what they have to do on a daily basis for us to really only pay attention to them, unfortunately, once every four years. So I really hope you guys enjoyed it. If you guys could rate, comment, share, um, tell your friends about it, do whatever you got to do. I really think that these stories are incredible and inspirational and more people should really listen to them for, again, for the amount of blood, sweat, tears, money, energy that our athletes are putting into the, um, trying to make it to the games. I really do believe the least we can do is listen to how they got there. So thank you guys so much for listening. I sincerely appreciate it. I hope you have a wonderful day.